Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Insurance Uncovered. I'm Kathy Imus, and today, as our coverage of the global coronavirus pandemic continues, we're uncovering Congress backs the insurance industry. The timely letter sent to President Trump defending protections from retroactive business interruption coverage mandates. And Dr. Bob Hartwig joins us for an update on the industry's economic outlook amid the coronavirus epidemic. The number of patients with COVID-19 grows every day throughout the United States and across the world. Today, the U.S. has seen nearly 600,000 total cases, with the death toll rapidly approaching 30,000 and another 44,000 who have recovered. Meantime, Washington seeks a way forward amid the COVID-19 pandemic that closed most communities and ground the economy to a halt. Congressional leaders are battling over the parameters of additional support for the Paycheck Protection Program, a $350 billion lending program to help small businesses maintain payroll during the crisis in which loans would be forgiven if companies avoid laying off workers. There has been a rush of applications, with some estimating the initial fund will be depleted by the end of this week. The federal government has also looked to insurers for guidance and support as the coronavirus pandemic grows. Seven GOP senators sent a letter to President Donald Trump asking him to protect the industry from proposals in several state legislatures that would change contract law and require insurance companies to retroactively apply business interruption policies to cover small business losses due to the pandemic. NAMIC Senior Vice President of Government Affairs Jimmy Grandy says the timing of that letter couldn't have been better. On Friday, April 10th, President Trump, in his daily briefing, was asked a question by a reporter about credit card debt and interest rates for credit cards. He rather inexplicably went into an answer that included uh, a whole lot of information about business interruption insurance and left some with the mistaken conclusion that he may have been calling on insurance companies to pay business interruption claims where coverage didn't exist. He did state clearly in his uh, remarks that uh, many policies had exclusions, um, but this did set off a, a little bit of a firestorm uh, for, for the insurance industry. And we had been working with a group of U.S. senators and many policymakers in Washington on a letter to the White House to help counter the narrative, the erroneous narrative, from the celebrity chefs. Uh, and so because we had that in progress, within about an hour of the president's remarks, we were able to have a letter sent from seven influential U.S. senators to the White House, directly to the president, explaining how business interruption insurance works, explaining how the regulators of our industry said that doing any type of retroactive business interruption insurance coverage would bankrupt the insurance industry. And this letter was highly effective. It is going to be followed up with several more letters from other influential groups of elected leaders in Washington. And so we're optimistic that uh, by the end of this week, uh, the White House will have a more clear understanding of how business interruption insurance works and uh, won't fall uh, victim to the uh, erroneous message from the celebrity uh, millionaire chefs. As long-term solutions to protect Americans and American businesses from the economic ramifications of the coronavirus continue to be debated in Congress, 
NAMIC is offering guidance on ways the insurance industry can and can't help. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnis talks with South Carolina University Risk Management and Insurance Director, Dr. Bob Hartwig, about the economic outlook for the property casualty insurance industry and why legislators often misguidedly look to insurers for a solution. Well, our guest today on Insurance Unscripted is Dr. Robert Hartwig, formerly the head of the Insurance Information Institute and currently the director of the Center for Risk and Uncertainty Management at the University of South Carolina. Bob is perhaps the foremost expert when it comes to our industry. He's an economist. He worked for NCCI prior to III. And of course, now in academia, he still follows our industry. Just um, a couple days ago, really, several days ago, um, depending on when this podcast airs, Bob did a very popular virtual event, a webinar with our members and updated us on the economic outlook for the industry which of course is, um, is very interesting these days as we face the onslaught of the coronavirus and the economic shutdown that we're all dealing with. So, Bob, thanks for joining us today. Hey, glad to be on another podcast with you, Chuck. You know, I just was looking for the guy, since you are the director of the Center for Risk and Uncertainty Management in these uncertain times, I knew you were exactly the person we, our members needed to hear from. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, there's never any shortage of risk and uncertainty in the world. And uh, uh, I mean, today really underscores that point where we have, you know, uncertainty, uh, certainly in terms of the economy, obviously, we have uncertainty in terms of uh, pu many public health issues all around the world. And, and of course, the subject of this podcast, uh, how does all of this distilled down into impacts for the property casualty insurance industry? And, and clearly, there's a lot of uncertainty here as well. Although I think, Chuck, by the time we get to the end of this conversation, I think we will uh, help the listeners understand that um, really there's a, there's a path forward, that, that language is pretty clear in insurance contracts, and um, perhaps the, the, the uncertainty is a little bit less in the property casualty insurance industry than it is in many other segments of the economy. Well, and that is, is really what we're dealing with now. I mean, we are at, uh, you know, we're great source of financial strength to the economy. We're the, uh, you know, economic uh, oxygen, as it's called, that keeps business running. And yet uh, today, it seems like on all fronts, media, legislators, others want to know more about, you know, why our $800 billion in so-called surplus, misleading term that we're, you know, is a legacy issue we're, we all have to deal with. But why if we have so much surplus, we're not willing to share it through business interruption uh, you know, policy coverage. Um, how are you responding to that? I'll also mention just today's date for it's, it's March 30th. Uh, we were both quoted in the Wall Street Journal this morning on this topic. And um, so maybe you can give a little insight to the environment we're facing there in terms of uh, our surplus and our financial position versus, uh, you know, these contracts that didn't cover pandemic as a peril. Well, here's some good news about this $800 billion. Uh, as the insurance industry entered, entered the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic era, really in March of this year, we entered it uh, financially strong, stable, sound, and secure. And exactly 60 days from now, we'll be entering the 2020 hurricane season, stable, strong, and secure. That's exactly how you want the insurance industry to be. And uh, the point here is, is that that $800 billion is simply 
assets that have been built up over time, capital that's been built up over time, uh, to help the insurance industry pay for uh, claims, large and small, uh, to help them underwrite new risks all over the United States for businesses, homeowners, auto owners, businesses large and small. And without that capital, the insurance industry would not be able to move forward uh, and be able to back uh, the needs of policyholders who have uh, claims today for which they've purchased coverage or to underwrite new policies um, in, in the future. So what this $800 billion really represents is a cushion. And it is a cushion uh, that, again, stands behind the millions and millions of policies that insurers have enforced today. Well, the question then arises, well, should it go to pay for business interruption claims? Well, again, the $800 billion is, is for uh, claims on policies for which policyholders have in fact paid a premium. So uh, we're talking about uh, someone who has a home on the coast of Florida. Absolutely, if a hurricane destroys that home this year, uh, some small part of that surplus could go to pay to rebuild or repair that home. But in the case of the coronavirus, um, very, very well-established policy language uh, states unequivocally that uh, there two things, that there must be physical loss or damage to insured uh, property from a covered cause of loss. So with a virus, uh, there is no physical loss or damage. And also very clearly, for more than a decade, there have been virus and bacteria exclusions in commercial property policies. Uh, and what that does is preclude, under any circumstance, any coverage at all for any microorganisms. And again, these have been approved by regulators in all 50 states and have, have been approved for more than a decade. So um, there's really no question here that the policies, uh, that, that business interruption policies and the interruption has to be triggered by a physical loss or damage from a covered cause of, uh, from a covered peril. Um, simply, there's no trigger here. And um, insurers, therefore, have never collected a premium, not a penny in premium for this type of loss. So they cannot uh, in any way, shape or form be expected to take the assets they've accumulated over time to pay for losses uh, that policyholders could legitimately have in the future and use those funds and distribute them basically because certain legislators in certain states would just like to see it that way uh, and leave other policyholders potentially in the lurch for valid claims that could be right around the corner. Uh that is a, a great explanation. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, Wayne surplus is, uh, is called upon by various lines of insurance for insurance that was written, um, you know, by our companies in the industry. But the other way to look at it is, you know, it's that $800 billion of surplus is held over, um, you know, thousands of insurance companies. And many of them are not even business insurance companies. I would guess, and I'll bet you could give us a number for this, but uh, probably half. Uh, perhaps more are in the personal lines area. You wouldn't expect their surplus would be used in any case with uh, commercial lines policy. Well, that's, that's a very good point, Chuck. You're right. There are a large number of insurers that don't write any business property policies whatsoever and would be tagged. Um, uh, their surplus would potentially become vulnerable in this situation. And in each one of the states that, um, that have proposed this legislation, uh, most of them have give, given some sort of nebulous 
um, uh, uh, plan that the insurers could in theory uh, recover whatever they pay out over some indefinitely long period of time. Uh, what that basically means is that the property casualty insurance industry would be asked to be given, would be, is essentially being asked to give the government, state governments in this case, an interest-free interest loan for an indeterminate period of time in exchange for jeopardizing their solvency and not being able to pay claims on, on policies for which there are clearly uh, business interruption triggers which will occur, such as uh, tornadoes, such as hurricanes, and those sorts of things. So this kind of thinking is very, is very dangerous. And it's also instructive to note that I have not seen the state insurance departments in any one of these states uh, uh, get on this bandwagon, because what they recognize is that were these states to have their way, I mean, quite frankly, it would result in the nearly uh, instantaneous, at least on paper, uh, insolvency of a very large number of insurance companies. So uh, they would take one crisis and multiply it into another crisis, uh, which would have no solution in sight. You know, that, that's also a great point. And, you know, as I thought back on the last financial crisis, and we were both there, uh, in the same roles, you know, with the industry and responding to that, it was a very different crisis. But one term that we all learned and that we saw, you know, unfolding in, in real time during the previous financial crisis was financial contagion. And I was just thinking that is one uh, aspect of, uh, uh, you know, financial catastrophe that we've not seen in this crisis. And if you want to in introduce it, I would say go down this path, as you suggest, uh, and make insurance companies pay a bunch of claims that they never underwrote, never reserved for, never took premium for, and don't have the money for. Uh, when you look at that uh, amount of surplus held all the way across the industry, um, you know that could cause financial contagion, which would be uh, insurance company insolvencies, uh, claims then being paid through the state guarantee fund system by other surviving insurance companies who were eventually dragged down into the you know the burden of paying off. Uh, these claims, even with some kind of long-term loan from state government. Well, or... Exactly. And so there's, there's no reason to pour gasoline on the situation, which is exactly what uh, the, uh, the state legislatures that have proposed uh, essentially redistributing the surplus by fiat um, would, would, would do. This is in some sense is actually a well-trodden path. Now, you and I both remember if we go back to say Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and to a lesser degree Sandy in 2012, uh, there were efforts there to try to get insurers to pay flood losses, which were clearly excluded and for which people had not purchased any coverage. So the insur uh, insurer had not collected a dime in coverage for uh, the flood in most of these cases. Yet uh, this produced two years of, of costly litigation the industry ultimately prevailed and the very plain language um, flood exclusion, which had also been approved by regulators in all 50 states and essentially was recognized by the federal government through the National Flood Insurance Program as well, um, it took two years of litigation to basically get that upheld. And um, it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate fight for the insurer to, to have to, to make because an insurer does not want to be involved 
in conflicts with policyholders, but uh, trial lawyers and some, some other individuals uh, at, in, at the state government level um, basically pushed in this direction, so there was no option. Um, I, I, I hope it doesn't come to that here. I hope that the uh, state insurance regulators uh, talk some sense into their legislatures, uh, but it is often the case that legislators are going to after any disaster, they're going to stand on a soapbox and make proclamations that they cannot possibly hope uh, to withstand a court challenge. Um, and there's very little political risk to them, typically speaking, and they get to basically announce the fact that they stood up to the, the big bad insurance industry, um, when in fact the insurance industry shouldn't even have been brought into the, the brawl to begin with. You know we talk a lot about the financial um, risk, but we should also discuss at least what this kind of move would do to contract law, something not only the insurance industry depends on, but really all business depends on. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, there is always an effort after large events to expand the four, contract, the four corners of the insurance contract, and the policy is nothing but a contract. And when there's enough money at stake, uh, there are going to be trial lawyers or who are going to try to expand those four corners. Um, but uh, the, the ins insurance policies are written with very precise language for a very specific reason. And that's because over the span of many years and decades, in fact, uh, there have been many court cases that have uh, led to refinements of language so that the language is ever more precise so that there's essentially no ambiguity at all, that they are crystal clear, that there's no other alternative interpretation. Um, if uh, legislatures were somehow successful at abrogating these very, very clear contracts, for instance, that state very clearly that there's an exclusion on viruses, then uh, you know the policy isn't worth the paper it's printed on. And it would be impossible for insurers for any type of insurance to, to uh, price appropriately how much that insurance could cost going forward. The insurer would always have to assume that a state could ignore the terms of the contract, even if they were agreed to by both parties, met every term and condition that was required in that state and by federal law and had been, proved by the, been approved by the state's insurance regulators. If there's no contract certainty, then in some sense, there's no insurance industry because again, an insurance policy is nothing other than a contract. And if that contract can be disregarded at any time, apparently for any reason, uh, then how can you possibly provide insurance and provide assurances to the millions of businesses and, and hundreds of millions of, of homeowners and, and vehicle owners out there? For now, Bob, we're out of time, but I would like to thank you again. Uh, you were in a webinar that uh, is still available to dynamic members and the recorded version of it. Uh, it's still very current. It was just uh, toward the end of last week, um, which is the second to last week of March. Keeping our times straight here as this uh, podcast will probably not air for another week or so. But uh, anyone can go and uh, listen to that webinar. And then the time today, obviously, I think it's been very valuable for our listeners. So I appreciate it greatly. We'll be in touch. My pleasure. Anytime, Chuck. Thanks, Bob. NAMIC is proud to see mutual insurers finding ways to be there for their policyholders and their communities in these uncertain times. 
Major auto insurers are offering $10.5 billion in discounts in the latest coronavirus relief efforts. That includes premium discounts, refunds, and credits in recognition of the fact that people are driving less during the pandemic. Several insurers have also found ways to support community hunger needs through donations to local food programs. Others have donated money and personal protective equipment to hospitals and healthcare workers. We've also seen mutuals waive late fees and suspend cancellation and non-renewal of coverage due to non-payment. We're encouraged by the stories from NAMIC members and would love to know what you're doing to help in this time. Please email us here at uncovered at to share your stories. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back on April 29th with more insurance news and interviews. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Stay safe out there and remember to look out for one another.